This morning, our scripture reading comes to us from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm going to back it up just a touch at the end of chapter 2, verses 17, and then we'll read chapter 3 together. Brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We wanted to come to you. Certainly, I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who's our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. But Timothy, has just now come to us from you and has brought us good news about your faith and your love. And he's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all of our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may God, our Father himself, and the Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase in the overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father, when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is the word of the Lord. We're looking at Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. We've entitled this series, Living in Between the Already and Not Yet. Way of thinking about living between what is already accomplished through Christ's perfect and beautiful, loving, wise life and his atoning death on the cross and his divine resurrection proving that he was not just another religious leader or a sage or a political messiah. There were political messiahs before Jesus, and there were political messiahs uh, for the people of Israel after Jesus. But that Jesus was actually who he claimed to be, the creator of all things, come to restore uh, and make a way for the creator God to be reconciled with his beloved creation. And uh, this was the message. And how is it that we live in between what was accomplished at the death and resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus, how do we live in the here and now? We don't, as Christians, live as passive observers where we just sort of sit back and not really care about what's going on in our city and say, well, in the end, you know, uh, we will be with our God. We're, We're also not the saviors, so we don't have a Messiah complex looking at the city and weirdly expecting people who don't know God or love God or trust God to live as though they do. So we're, we're neither these sort of, you know, militant saviors commanding the city to live according to our ethic, but we're also not passive observers. We are these loving ministers who love and care for our neighbors. We are called 
to emulate Christ in his love, his wisdom, his holiness uh, in such a way that uh, we are humbled by the grace we've received because we know we've been accepted by God, not on the basis of the lives that we're living, but surely upon the grace of Jesus Christ, surely upon, uh, completely upon his sacrifice. This message of what Jesus Christ did in 33 AD under Pontius Pilate when he was crucified and rose again three days later was Paul's message to all these churches. And this takes place very shortly after the resurrection, as we've been saying the last couple of weeks. And this was rejected by Jews and Greeks alike. It's not as though in the ancient world they were these unintelligent knuckle-draggers who could believe that a human being rose from death and they had an easy time believing it. And we as intellectual moderns have difficulty believing it. That's not the case. They had difficulty believing it then. And Paul got ran out of Thessalonica three weeks later precisely because this message was rejected. It was rejected by the culture where the the Greco-Roman culture... They didn't have a problem believing that a god would become a human because they had lots of mythology around that. But they thought it was absolutely abhorrent that any god would be uh, identified with a sinful humanity and would die an abhorrent death on a Roman cross. And what self-respecting Greek or Roman would ever follow such a person? And yet, by this point in human history, tens of thousands were. And the Jews rejected the message because they believed that the Messiah, that this would be uh, a political deliverance. And so when God's Messiah came, the Messiah prophesied throughout the entire Old Testament, came, it would mean deliverance from political oppression. It would mean a lot of things. The return of uh, the restoration of Davidic Israel, the restoration of their laws, the restoration of the temple, all these things. And so when... Paul and the apostles going around proclaiming that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the one that had been prophesied about throughout all the Old Testament scriptures, it was wholesale rejected by by many in both groups. And yet this was a message that turned the world upside down. There's a theologian named Tom Holland, for those of you who are history buffs. Sorry, I meant to say historian, not theologian. He's not a believer. Uh, He's not a Christian, to my knowledge. Tom Holland, who writes about how Uh, Paul's uh, ministry and how uh, ultimately Jesus Christ and the life that he lived had changed the West and it exploded overnight. This is where we pick up the context for what's going on here. That this message that Paul had brought, it turned the world upside down and they ran him out of Thessalonica and he's worried about this little church. In verse 3, he says that he's concerned. He wants to help them establish their faith. He uses the phrase, I didn't want anybody to be shaken by the afflictions. Last couple of weeks I was talking about affliction being pressure, uh, whether it be pressure from the religious group in the synagogue that rejected Jesus or pressure from the culture that said, why are you living like Jesus is king, live like the values of culture are king, constant pressure. But here there's an interesting word that Paul uses to say, I didn't want you to be shaken by the afflictions. And the word shaken in the Greek is uh, the word saino, which means it actually comes from the phrase of a dog wagging its tail. Flattery. Uh, because when a dog comes to you wagging its tail, you're flattered. Oh, the dog likes me. The dog loves me. The dog, oh, you're flattered immediately. Now, I know there's a lot of dog lovers in here, and I tread softly because without question, your dogs are the greatest dogs on planet Earth. And I'm not disputing that this morning. It would be foolish for me to suggest otherwise. What I'm talking about is a dog you've never seen before in your life comes up to you on the street wagging its tail, you're immediately flattered. Oh, the dog. your voice goes up a couple octaves. You're petting the dog. Oh, the dog likes me. The, do- the dog doesn't know you. The 
dog is wondering if you have food. Right? You're flattered. That's what's going on here. And that's where, the, that's, that's where this word came from. I don't want you to be shaken by the affliction. I don't want you to be flattered by the cultural commentaries. I don't want you to somehow get swept up in this thing that is ultimately going to pull you away from the creator God who will bring a sense of unity and congruence and quiet to your soul for some small mini-messiah incapable of satisfying you, whereby you live your life in sort of a chronic disappointment. So Paul uses that language and he goes on to say, we were appointed to these afflictions. In other words, God knew about this. Our lives are in God's hands. This isn't a surprise. We told you you'd be persecuted. And none of this is because God is some sort of sadistic, cosmic parent that gets some dark pleasure out of hurting his children. No. He's a loving parent who wisely uses all terrible things to forge resilience and strength and courage in his children. Some of you are parents here today, and if you try and shield your children from every potential challenge and trial and hardship, you try and rescue them from anxious moments uh, without letting them settle into the gravity of those moments, then you're not going to forge character in your kids. You're going to forge, you're going to sort of facilitate entitlement in your kids. They should somehow be always rescued from things. And so our God is a loving God, but of course permitted all of these things, knew these things would be happening, and as a wise and loving father, uses things that are absolutely unlike his loving nature to forge resilience in his children. So Paul cares about this church big time. And in these letters to Thessalonica, we're given a lot of insight into how the relationships in the church should look. And that, you notice how warm this letter is, how Paul's like, he just loves these people. His heart is on his sleeve. So this morning, I want us to consider a few insights. The first one is how um, this passage shows us how to establish relationships. Secondly, keep and deepen relationships. And lastly, posture ourselves for healthy relationships. The context being the people in this room. Undoubtedly, you will find application for, you know, your marriage and vocations and friendships outside this room. But the, um, the immediate context for this is there is a love and a warmth and a care for the people in his faith community. So I want us to think about that this morning. But before I do, a word of full disclosure. I made two huge mistakes preparing this sermon. I have a process that I go through every week. I'm a little bit like a robot with my life. With many things, I, I just love patterns and, and stuff, and, and I do the same thing quite often. So the, the process for the sermon is first espresso, read the text, read the original languages, think about it, pray, meditate. Second espresso, read the text, consult the historical commentaries, open up Logos, fire it up, get all the documentation. Third espresso, draft one, write draft one. Go for a walk, think about you guys, think about contextualizing it, pray for you, see your faces. Maybe sometimes I open up the church database, try and memorize the names of your kids, pray for your families. Fourth espresso, draft two. Next day, wake up in the morning, espresso. After the espresso, draft three, four. Get out the sharpie, get out the highlighter, draw all over it. Make little pictures that remind myself of things so that I don't have to read my notes, but I can hopefully share from my heart. Fifth espresso. Understand? I have a process. Granted, it involves a lot of performance-enhancing drugs. I'm, I'm, I'm teaching on performance-enhancing drugs right now. Uh, but the, mis- the mistake I made was I got to draft number one, and I thought to myself, I wonder if the late Tim Keller ever taught on this passage. And I found his teaching in 1996, and then I looked at it, 
and then I couldn't unsee it. The insights were so good. And at the end of his teaching, I made a second mistake. And he quoted Spurgeon, theologian from the 17th century, or wrote, wrote a sermon in 1870, sorry, uh, on this passage entitled, um, A Pastor's Life Wrapped Up in the People's Steadfastness. And then I couldn't unsee that. And then I looked at Keller's insights, and I looked at Spurgeon's insights, and then I looked at my draft, and I had a choice. There was either going to be wild plagiarism today, or I was like, how do I serve these people? And so here's what I've, here's what I've, I've decided to do. I don't want to be up here like a bad cover band just doing the worst version of an original Beatles song and just preach their sermons. That would maybe not be a great idea. But I, I thought, you know, I, I can't unsee this. It's undeniable. I was not going to go the direction that these, these two heroes of the faith went. And so I decided I'm going to be like a Formula One uh, chief design engineer who looks across the garage and sees the other design and just has to concede. It's just better. And we need to incorporate some of that stuff, and we have to. It's just going to benefit everybody to incorporate it. So, uh, so that's what we have this morning, uh, is I just had to concede it. So as I teach this, full disclosure, the front wing was inspired by Keller. The side pods are Spurgeons. Here we go. Uh, the first thing is on establishing relationships. This requires a willingness to be vulnerable. Vulnerability is at the foundation of every strong church community. And you notice it in Paul's language because he's really invested. He's mega invested emotionally, the way that he's talking about the church. In fact, he talks about it in a way like his joy is bound up with them. And to the degree that they're suffering, he, he can't, I don't want to say that he doesn't have joy in the Lord. He does. Better word, his happiness, like his day-to-day happiness. He can't know that the church is suffering and just be unaffected emotionally. By it. There's a tremendous vulnerability. His heart is on his sleeve, the way that he's talking to the church about it. If they're in pain, he's in pain. He just, it's inseparable. It, it, those of you who have, if you're a parent, you have a child, you understand that. If, if you're not a parent and you, have a, and you have a friend or a brother or a sister or a parent, if, if they're, to the degree that they're suffering, you're like, I just can't go through my day like everything's fine. You're sort of bound up in that. And I'm not talking about un, un, unhealthy emotional boundaries where, um, uh, whereby there's a sense of uh, codependency and, and, and uh, an emotional dependency that is an unhealthy. I'm talking about a genuine, vulnerable care and love where you just can't shut your heart off because people are so aloof. I mean, the way to, the way to go through life in a church community like this and not be bothered or sorrowful about what any of the people sitting around you are going through is to just keep all the relationships at arm's length much more comfortable. Right? When I go on holidays, I can shut off a lot of things. Like I can shut off the idea of, of, of work and I'm not preparing sermons and teaching. I'm not plagiarizing Spurgeon's things, so that frees up a lot of brain space. Like there's, I can shut off stuff, but what I can't shut off is the care that I have for those of you who reached out to me in the last couple of weeks and have said, you know, I've sat on your couch and we've talked about things or we had a coffee. Like, I'll, I can't shut that off and be like, well, I guess I'll just have to wait two weeks before I see how they're doing. Like, I can just shut it off emotionally. You care, you love. If your child is sick, you're like, okay, I can't just go on with my day like everything's fine. I'm bothered by this. 
Your child is in trouble. This is, this, is a, this is a vulnerable place to have those kinds of friendships in the church. It's intimidating. You would much prefer to just come in here, sit down, keep me 20 to 30 feet away from you and your life, for one, because it's easy to, to be like, oh, we love that pastor. As long as he stays over there, do not ask me difficult questions on my couch. Please, thank you. But even more so than me, the people sitting around you to be like, do I care about them? And you hear me say all the time at Redeemer, and I'll say it again, you know, I'm not expecting deep, close intimacy with 200 people. Impossible. But two or three, absolutely critical, necessary. Not something I can manufacture for you. Not something that can be curated through a church program. Vulnerability. To care. And Paul's language is just bound up in this way. In verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 17, he says, With intense longing we wanted to see you. The word for intense longing is, in the Greek, is epithemia. And epithemia, used all other places, is translated lust, which we often associate with sort of sexual um, sort of implications. But it's, the word lust, epithemia in the Greek, is, is not inherently sexual, though it can be. It just means you have this ongoing sort of relentless fixation, care, focus. It means that if you're not doing something that occupies your mind, the moment you stop having your mind occupied... It goes to this thing. It goes to this person. It's epi, epic, massive, thymia, the thinking. It's the, it's the epic thought. The, the moment I'm not busy, my mind is fixated back to this thing. It can be sexual. And in the negative connotations of the New Testament, it's like a negative sexual uh, sort of pursuit outside God's wisdom and design. But here, Paul is using it to say, like, my mind, I just can't stop thinking about you. It's deep. And there's... Perhaps an escape hatch here for some of you where you might be thinking, well, let's stick to the context here, preacher. And this is actually about a pastor to his church. So this only applies to me and, the, and Rick and Peter and our care for this church. And you guys get off the hook. You would think that, except if you back out and read all of First and Thessalonians, one of the things Paul's excited about is they have had their lives formed by this cross-shaped love. Where Paul's saying things like, follow me as I follow Christ. And so there's this idea that the example that Paul is living of this sort of vulnerability and love and care is actually embraced by the church and then walked out amongst the people. So it isn't like a top-down pastor of the people thing. The only reason I'm preaching up above you is because I'm short. But frankly, like, you know, understand we're all sheep and we want to emulate the, the glory and the love, the care of our shepherd. So... It's not just for the preachers, it's for the church. And so Paul says, I could, we couldn't take it any longer, so we sent Timothy to you, and we stayed alone in Athens, and that was to their own detriment, because they're running for their lives. But he's like, they cared about him so much. And you'd think, like, well, is this just, like, hyperbole? Like, you know how people just be like, oh, man, I love you, I love you, oh, I love you guys, I love you guys. You're like, well, not really. It's a sentiment. Is that what Paul's doing here? Well, when you look at the impact of his life, of the churches, the fruit of his ministry, no, this is legit. It actually had a tremendous uh, fruitful impact on uh, the churches. That it had to be, this genuine care had to be true. You'll remember that he said, we weren't a burden to you. We didn't show up and expect all of your hospitality and food and money and care. We didn't freeload off you. We came to Thessalonica, we worked, we paid our share, we took care of ourselves. We, you know, we, we served. Deep love and care. The only condition that people really truly change is when they know that the, people that's, the person that's doing the teaching loves them. I'm speaking in a church context. 
Right? It would be one thing for me to be up here and to just be you know, expositing texts and teaching. And, but then you, know, you reach out, hey, Pastor Paul, it's been a terrible week. Can we have a coffee? Crickets. I don't respond to your email. I don't call you. I don't meet with you. I'm, the, just, the, I'm just the guy in charge of teaching and vision. That's my responsibility. You'd be like, I don't, there's a massive disconnect between what you're saying and what you're preaching and what's being lived out here. And even more so, there can't be a disconnect between what I'm teaching and how you guys are walking it out and living it out with one another. Because when we invite friends, neighbors, so-and-so, if you're, if you're visiting this morning, if this is your first Sunday at Redeemer, and you're exploring Christian faith, that you might feel like, oh my goodness, I'm interrupting a, a members meeting. No, no, I'm so glad you're here. You picked a great Sunday because... Part of, the, it, part of what's important about our Christian faith is that it's not a head trip. It's that we walk it out. Now, we fail at that, which is why you know lots of Christians are able to say, hey, Jesus seemed to be this way, but my experience with church or with people was a train wreck. That, does, that, that doesn't um, disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That just proves the frailty of whoever hurt you. Um, and so there can't be this disconnect. It can't just be a head game. It's got to be lived out. So there's got to be, but that requires this incredible vulnerability. And uh, when Keller was uh, teaching on uh, at, the, at this point of the text, one of the things he said was, you know, why is it so difficult for us to be vulnerable in the church with one another? And he gave a couple suggestions. He gave two, and I added a third one because I was like, come on, Tim, you're not even trying. There's got to be. <laughs> so uh, the two suggestions that Keller made, one was divorce, that it's rampant, that half of us have experienced it. Uh, as children of divorce, half of us have experienced it uh, if, if you're in a marriage that uh, ended in divorce. Or all of us have experienced it through friends. Just the breakdown, the, just the, the rampant impact of somebody making a commitment, walking away from the commitment for a myriad of reasons. But it just having an impact on saying, how willing am I going to be to be vulnerable and to love and to care and to put myself out there? And after divorce, he talked about the mobility of being a modern person. Just, you're in a city for work, you're out of a city for work, you come here, you're, you move to uh, Kitchener-Waterloo for work, you're at Redeemer, but you don't know how long your work term is, so how deeply do I want to get invested with these people? You're a student, you're in school, first year, second year, third year, fourth year, how long am I here? I've got co-op, do I want to get to know people who aren't other students, or should I just stick to the 17, well, let's face it, 60 people that I know, and not talk to anybody who looks like they're too old to be in university? Uh, why should I get vulnerable? Why should I share my life? Why should I get involved? I'm not going to be at this church very long. The mobility of modern life can just make it be like, it's just not that, it's very difficult to be vulnerable, to build friendships, to care, to love, to serve. And the last, the, the, thing, the other thing that I added to these two suggestions was just past pains. You know, you're hurt, you're wounded, somebody hurt you, 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 you trusted. And some of you are here with fresh wounds. And if you're here with fresh wounds, you know, catch your breath, take your time, trust for the presence of God and the, the gift of renewal and the liturgy as you gather and worship on Sundays for God to heal you. Take, your, take a breath. Some of you, it's not fresh wounds. Some of you, they're very old wounds. They're very old wounds that have sort of festered. And now you're living with a kind of a shields up attitude to church. I was hurt in church. I had a terrible church experience. A church trauma. I had this thing happen. I'm not diminishing that. The church is full of human beings. It's not like, and some people have been disillusioned by the church and are like, that's it. I'm out of here. I'm going to reject uh, the church and I'm going to just go and uh, live with uh, uh, 
live my life as a person of non-faith because as we know, uh, all the people of non-faith don't have any issues with integrity or care or love or service or kindness or generosity. The people of non-faith, are, they should write a textbook on how... No, understand, it's a human problem. We're not escaping it. It's a human problem. And so some of us have been through that stuff and it's like, I don't know that I can be vulnerable again. But if you just continue to worship here at Redeemer and relate to all the people in the chairs around you by keeping them at arm's length because it's easier, you're, you're sadly living beneath um, this gift, this blessing that is available. You're sadly living beneath that. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you, of course. Of course he does. But you're somehow in a damaging way curved inward. And a lot of the healing and the blessing and the gift that is... Uh, intended for you is that to flourish as a human being is to be Christ-like, and that is not to be curved inward. It's actually to be curved outward. And through the process of curving outward and giving of ourselves, that is the pathway to fulfillment and joy because we are then living in congruence with our loving and creating God, creator God, who gave everything outside himself to uh, his beloved creation. So let's move on to the second thing, which is keeping and deepening relationships. And this requires a commitment to be honest Honesty that's driven by genuine care makes relationships in the church rich. One of the things that, that uh, Keller said when he got to this point in his teaching was he said Paul was not warming himself at the fire of their approval. He was not trying to garner warmth for his self-esteem at their approval because he says, I can't wait to be with you. Why? You read the text. I can't wait to be with you guys so I can help with what you're lacking. Oh. He's, I can't wait to get there because there's these things you lack. I need to establish your faith. I was only there for over three weekends and then I got run out of town. But there's so many ways in which you need to grow and learn and change. That's pretty honest and that's not the way that you <laughs> just make sure that everybody likes you by talking with that kind of honesty. There's some things that are lacking in your life I can't wait to see you next. But this is what actually he does say in verse 10. But what's his tone? What's the tone of the honesty? He's not kicking the sheep. He loves them. He's not punching the people of God in the face every opportunity he gets and telling them how, how bad the sin is in their life. He's like, he loves them and he wants to come and come around them and walk side by side with them. There's like a deep love here. But if we are not willing to be vulnerable, if we're not willing to be honest, if there is an insecurity, we're not going to be willing to give good and loving, constructive criticism to one another as friends in this room because we're... We, we, we too badly need approval. So we're going to shy away from that. But we see in the life of Paul, there's a freedom here. A freedom to be honest and a freedom to, to do that. And, and he's able to do this without a judgmental tone. And yet he's judging. And some of you might be new to the scriptures. And you might say, this is one of the things that confuses me about the Bible. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Jesus says famously, judge not and you shall not be judged. Of course, that's as far as we memorize there's more after that. Does anybody know it? Don't raise your hands. But that, that, that part we know. Judge not. You shall not be judged. The end. No. For with the measure that you judge, you will be judged. Well, what is that measure? Well, that unpacks all kinds of things about judgment and whose judgment and what is truth and all these things. The Bible is not against using your reasoning faculties. Who in the world can go through life not judging? To say, no judgment, man. I'm not living life with any judgment. You are not going through life assessing things or people or situations or motives. You are a, you are a no judgment person. That is a denial of, rea- of reality. This is not 
uh, what's actually happening. That can't be. The Bible, the entire book of Proverbs, wisdom literature, is all about exercising good judgment. But yet there is a judgment that the Bible condemns. A judgmental person, the judgment that the Bible condemns is the judgment that is given to push people away. But Paul, and the judgment we are called to, is given to pull people close. You can judge someone to create superiority. Oh, see that? You, me. Do you see that? Do you see that difference? There's that kind of judgment which the Bible condemns. Push them away. I just got to be honest. I call a spade a spade. That's the kind of person I am. I just say everything that comes into my head. Wow, is that your spiritual gift? Amazing. No, it's not judgment that pushes people away. There is a loving and kind delivery that is unapologetic judgment for the purpose of pulling them forward. It's not punitive. It's restorative. It's the way that the judgment is supposed to be uh, in the church. The way the elders are to care for the church. There's a judgment the apostles are giving. And the goal is restoration always. Let's move on to the the, the final thing here. We're, We're given a posture for how to have healthy relationships. And that posture, we see, is ministers, not consumers. That relationships that exist to meet our needs, that creates a community that's transactional. Right? I'll be friends with the people at Redeemer. I'll develop relationships within this faith community. If it suits me, here's my criteria. This is what I need in my life right now. I I have a vision board, and I put on my vision board all the things that I need. And then I looked around the room, and I asked myself, is there anybody here in Redeemer who can meet all my needs? And I looked to and fro, and yea, verily I say unto myself, no, I didn't see anybody that meets the criteria that I need, and so therefore the church is at arm's length. No, it's not a transactional way of relating to the church. It's ministerial. It's missional. Paul calls them his crown. Chapter 2, verse 7. What is our joy? What is our hope? What is our crown? You would think his answer would be, it's Jesus. And of course, in an ultimate sense, it's Jesus. But he says, it's you. It's like, it's like it, you matter. This isn't a trend. I didn't calculate the ROI and realize these Thessalonians are not bringing anything to the table. So you want to know something? I'm just going to teach, and I'm out of here, and I'm going to the next town. And if you yahoos wreck your life, that's on you, bro. No, that's not, what he, that's not his attitude. It's not transactional. And therefore, for you and I, as we think about this, our goal for relationships, it can be quite transactional. We can come into Redeemer. Maybe you move to the city, and it's, it's incredibly difficult to uh, connect with the church community. So I want to be sensitive to that, for those of you who are new. You're like, how in the world do we know, how do I know I'm going to connect? And in a lot of ways, the answer is time. You know, are the, is Christ preached? Are the scriptures being taught faithfully? And then but there's the other big thing, which is difficult, which is can I connect in community here? But that's not something that you can put on somebody else. That's something that you've got to be vulnerable and honest and, and get your heart on your sleeve and build friendships. And it's difficult to do. And yet this is the picture that we are given uh, to be able to do this. You know, um, one of my favorite things to do on Mondays, well, every day really, but on Mondays, my day off, is I'm building virtual garages all the time. I'm always looking at all the cars 
and all the different categories. What will the market bear? What are their specs? What do they have? And I'm building all the, I'm constantly looking at cars and I put them in the virtual garage and if we need to get, if the car explodes tomorrow, this is the one we're going to get. And da, da, da. I'm constantly doing it. And Susan's like, Paul, what are you doing? These cars are selling anyways. It's not even there. And I'm like, but that's the fun. It's in the hunt because then I get to do it again. And when you're looking for cars, they come into two categories. One is certified and one is as is. And the certified cars, you walk up, you buy it, you drive away, it's certified, it's turnkey, it's done. The as-is cars, is like, well, it's going to take some work. And there is no certified churches, but that's basically what we want. I've been doing this for almost three decades, and I've heard a lot of conversations of disappointed people who are leaving the church because the church isn't certified. We're sanctified, but we're not certified. Sanctified means... We're standing in a borrowed holiness of Christ, and then we spend the rest of our life wanting to emulate that kind of love and grace because we've been scandalously forgiven apart from anything we do. Sanctification, ongoing work. But, the church, but no church is certified. It's not like, we're done. All the churches are as is. All the relationships in here are as is. All the people in here are as is. All the marriages, all the students, the preacher for sure, the elders, whoa, those guys, as is. We are as is. We all need work. So as you are building relationships in the church, and as you're in community groups, you're doing different things, and people rub you the wrong way, and something doesn't go right, and the relationship goes sideways, and you're like, don't, please, please, my friend, my friend, my friend, please don't just say, you know what? i got to get out of here. This church isn't certified. My friend, grab a wrench. All the churches are as is. Every joint bring the supply. Everybody you minister. This is a terrible sermon, isn't it? I mean, you would rather that at the end of this I just said, guys, there's a lot of work to be done, so we need you to just give a little more money so we can hire another pastor, so we can just do all of the relating. And you guys would be like, is Redeemer with two E's or three? And I'm going to write that check right now. Because if the application is given money or given vulnerability, money wins. Bad news, ultimately spiritually for you, good news, vulnerability, honesty. And then lastly, this seeing ourselves as ministers. And so I close with this. Paul is doing for these people what Christ has done for him. It's the point. It's the power. The cross of Jesus Christ, it is the form of God's love for you and I and the fuel for our love for the people sitting next to us. He calls them his crown, his jewel. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Jesus says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We are his jewel. We are his crown. Old Testament Easter egg for the, for the uh, history nerds here. The priests would wear an ephod, right, when they would go into the temple. And that ephod had jewels on it. And on the jewels, covering their heart, were the names of the tribes. We are and have always been God's jewel. And so Paul's love for the people sitting in the chairs next to him is quite simply just an extension of what he has received from his loving and gracious God. So may we be strengthened in our hearts as Jesus Christ presents us blameless and holy in the presence of our Father. Amen. Let's pray.